Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, missed y'all last week, and thank y'all for the for the prayers. Uh, I feel like this is a safe place, but if it's not, I'm going to regret this. Uh, I, uh, can I can I tell you a story? It's maybe maybe a little bit on the embarrassing side, or maybe it says a little bit about my character that you probably didn't want to know. But I I used to be uh, a teenager that didn't always have good judgment. Anybody else? You were a teenager. You didn't have good judgment. Okay, wow. We had five teenagers in here without good judgment. The rest of you, congratulations. Uh, you should all write a book. Uh, I, I have this distinct memory uh, of being about uh, a little, little preteenish, maybe 11 ish or something like that. Me and a friend of mine, uh, we had gone to the gas station, and this is during the day before Uber or before, you know, any, we're just walking around. We're walking around the city. And we go to the gas station, and I get a, a grape flavored icy or a grape flavored slush. It was, it was frozen, it was a slush. And it was, supposed, it was purple, uh, and it was supposed to be grape. And and I had a few dollars, so I bought the big one, right? Because why not? Nobody's there. Uh, and I, I bought the slushy, and we we get it, we leave. And so me and my buddy, we're walking. He's drinking his, I'm drinking mine. Uh, but there's something wrong with mine. The flavor isn't right. It is purple as purple can be. It's a dark purple, um, but it is not grape flavored. It it's, it it tastes worse than water. You you know what I mean? Like whenever you know whenever you take a sip of unsweet tea, and you're just like. You know, water is better than unsweet tea. I don't know how it makes it worse, but the fact that it was supposed to have flavor and didn't made this slush worse. And so again, I'm 10, I'm 11 years old. I'm walking down the side of Twin City Highway. I'm holding what feels like about two gallons worth of a slushy I don't want anymore. And I had this great idea. Now, before I tell you the idea, I just need to let you know, uh, it, it spent about a third of a second in the filter zone of my brain. I didn't have a large filter at the time, but I just thought this would make a great, like, slushy bomb, okay? And so I'm walking down the highway and I turn and I look over my shoulder and there's just this car, like just some dude driving a Honda and I'm like, yeet, and I just throw it on him. <laughs> and I have no idea why I did it. I regretted it as soon as it left my hand. I kid you not. Don't judge me. I was a kid. And it hits this guy's windshield. Poor guy. He was only going 25 or 30. He was coming to a, a red light. Thank goodness. Like it didn't, like he wasn't going like highway speeds or something. Uh, but this, this grape flavored bomb just explodes over his dash. And I hit my friend. I'm like, that was great. He goes, what did you do? <laughs> and so the car comes to a screeching halt. Uh, the driver gets out and he chases me and my buddy. And we're just, you know, we're sprinting. I, I couldn't outrun him today, but I, I did a pretty good run at 11 years old. And you're like, Jesse, why would you tell us that? Well, one, I'm, I'm, I, have, I have my own <laughs> skeletons in my closet. Two, uh, I have to admit, there was a brief moment in time that that really dumb, stupid idea, evil idea, there was a brief moment in time that that felt like a really good idea. It just felt smart at the time. It felt like, oh, we're all going to get a big laugh. There's something in me in that moment that was really, really wrong about what was good and bad. What was really, really wrong about what was right and what was wrong. I'm telling you this today knowing that it was wrong, but in that brief moment in time, I thought it was right. But I wish that was the only time, like I could, I could just spend the entire service telling you stories about times that I did a thing that I thought was right, at least in the moment, or at least was right for me, or at least was good that time. But then I get on the other side of it and and it was a mistake. It was a problem. Um, raise your hand if you've been the source of every regret you've ever had that you carry today. At some point in those regrets, in the, you thought it was a good idea. You thought it was a right idea. You thought the grape slush was going to work. And then at the end, in the fallout, it was bad. That fact, 
that we can be wrong sometimes about what is good and bad, what is right and wrong. That fact that that can be true should cause us all to have a great deal of pause. Because what about that thing that you're thinking about doing tomorrow, next week, next year, next month? Is it good? And you're like, well, absolutely. But is it really, though? Is it, is it one of those things that it feels good in the moment and it's going to be another on the list of regrets in a week from now? Or is it really good? And, and, and here's another thing. If you're so capable at lying to yourself, is there a way to know the truth? Is there a way to like decipher something objective that says, this is how I know that that thing that I'm wanting is good and not bad, is right and not wrong? We're, we're beginning a series today looking at this very delicate and very difficult subject that our heart lies to us, and yet we want to live lives that are holy and good and right, and yet we are capable of lying to ourselves. And so we're starting this series uh, called Fabricating Truth, Unraveling Self-Deception. Isn't that heart the coolest looking graphic? Uh, we, the, the, we have a, a group of people that help us with it. They, they have some AI stuff. I, I just I stared at that heart for a while. The image that, of this is that you're, you're wanting to craft your heart. You're wanting to create it. And yet the strings that are being used are being pulled out from the bottom. And if we're not careful, the very things that we say that we want, the very things that we're chasing, after because they're not truly good, they're actually unraveling more than they are putting together. Can, can we know that we are being good in this moment? I told a story yesterday. I was speaking at a, at a, a retreat conference thing, and um, I told the story from my social work days of uh, this mom. I'll tell it briefly here. Uh, this mom who uh, she's, she's in court and she's losing custody of her child. The, the judge is just moments away from swinging the gavel and saying, ma'am, you have lost your rights to your child. It was, it's a heartbreaking moment. The truth is, is that it was her seventh child to lose. Each one had a different court date and each over the years, it had just kept happening. And at the end, the judge does. He, after all the evidence is presented, swings the gavel and says, ma'am, your rights as a mother to that child are now terminated. Uh, you know, please leave the court. You know, it's, it's very brief after that is done, and she just collapses. Her knees give out from under her, and she weeps. And I don't mean just a, a slight tear like she watched a Hallmark movie. I'm talking about the kind of weeping every mom in here is thinking about right now. If someone were to look you in the eye and tell you that, and she just collapsed. And my first thought, as wicked as it was, is like, how can you be surprised? This is your seventh time going through this. But then, you know, I watched her, and, you know, I caught, my humanity caught up with me, and I just, I just, I didn't see someone who deserved to lose her child, although the evidence was right. I mean, she, it was, it was good that this child would be placed in adoption somewhere else. But she's a mom that all of her decisions, she wanted to be good. And again, for the seventh time, she's finding out the truth that it wasn't. She's been slowly unraveling her heart and her kids are paying prices as a result of it. And she just couldn't hold herself together. Um, wrong people think that they're right. Your, your friend, the one that you're mad at, uh, the one that you used to be friends with, the family member that you haven't talked to in a while, you're like, they are wrong, but they think they're right, and they think you're wrong. Well, who, which one's right here? Uh, there has to be some way of getting to the truth. And so I was, I was working with the premise of, of this series. I've, I've had it on the books for a while, and I thought, like, is, does every evil person think that they're right? And I think so. I mean, think of the most evil person you can think of in all of history, uh, and if I said on the count of three, everybody yell out the name, I wonder how many of you would just be like, Hitler. I mean, that's the first one that I think of, right? Three, two, one, Hitler. And you just, you just think, like the most evil, wicked person in the modern world mind. 
And if, he, if, we, if I got him up here and interviewed him, I'm like, hey, man, what were you thinking? He's like, seemed like a good idea. Taking on the whole world, hurting a lot of people. He would make the case that his position was good and right. And we would all universally be like, but you're wrong. But what about when we do it? What about when we make the case that we are good and right, but we're objectively wrong? Every evil and wrong action comes from a person that believes, at least in the moment, at least briefly, believes in the moment that it is good and right. Every evil and wrong action comes from a person that believes it is good and right. And this alone should cause us a little bit of pause to reflect and evaluate our own motivations and to evaluate, like, why do I keep going through this? Why do I keep having that same thing come up? This is, by the way, the premise of the entire book of Judges. If you, if you know your Old Testament a little bit, you get, you know, you got uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, you get kind of through all the Moses stuff, and then you have Joshua, and then you get to the book of Judges, and there's a cycle that repeats over and over again. The people did what was right in their own eyes. And then God had to send somebody to tell them otherwise. <laughs> I, I didn't mean to Dr. Seuss that. Uh, it just happened. Uh, I could I could have maybe I could write a book. Uh, uh, that that uh, this generation would rise up, and the people did what was right in their own eyes. And so God raises up a judge, like, no, you, what you thought was right was actually wrong. Let me tell you the right way. And they're like, oh, you're so right. Thank you so much, Judge, for helping us. And then the next generation rises up, and what happens? The people, again, did what was right in their own eyes, and so God sends somebody else. I want to look at why that is uh, to kind of kick off this series. And if you don't judge me, I'm just going to take a seat while we do that. Uh, and look at why that is, and maybe start to unpack, like, okay, is this happening to us? Are we immune to this? Or, uh, or, or can we reflect on it a little bit more? I'm going to ask you, uh, if you want to follow along in your Bible, I'm going to spend a good minute in Galatians chapter 6, and so you can find that in a moment. Uh, but first, I want to look at James 1.22. Why is it uh, that people fall into this trap? How is it that this is uh, kind of a piece of the human condition? And it seems like the Bible uses the word deceit a lot uh, to explain why it is that we fall into that. The reason why we fall for the lie is because we fall for the deceit. But specifically, anytime we talk about deceit, we think of the, the enemy, the deceitful one, that Satan has come and he's lying to us. But the Bible says something different, that like he, he is the, the father of lies, but the kind of deceit that we keep falling for, the Bible calls it self-deceit. The Bible says that you and I, we are incredibly gifted and talented at telling ourselves that everything we've done is right, good, and holy, uh, and we need someone to cure us of self-deceit. And so let's look at a few passages to just kind of back this up. Uh, you could literally open, I would say, any book of the Bible. Uh, maybe that's an overstatement. Almost any book of the Bible and find this teaching that we practice self-deceit. James 1.22 says, but be doers of the word. What James has been saying in this chapter as he's opening that book is like, hey, listen, it's good that you know the word, now do it. It's good that you know the Bible, now do the things you know you're taught to do. But here's the warning, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Not falling for the lie, it's feeding yourself the lie and then believing your own fake news. If you're not, if you're not doing the things that you know God has called you to do, eventually you lie to yourself and say, I'm a pretty good guy. I'm a pretty good girl. I'm doing, I'm doing all right. And we deceive ourselves. Let's look at another passage about self-deceit. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. It says, let no one deceive himself. That's a pretty good, oh yeah. Anybody here? Like, I love lying to myself. 
I love, I love like just closing my eyes, burying my head in the sand. No, I want, I want, I want to know the truth. I want to head up, eyes up, know what's going on. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. It's a very Yoda-like statement, isn't it? Thanks, Paul, for, for that. If, if you, if you, if your, if your default mode is I've got this life figured out, I don't need any help. I'm, I'm right and you're wrong. If your default mode hasn't been checked in a while, you are wise in this age, uh, it would be better for you to quickly become a fool and to forget, forget all of those things so that you can begin to rebuild something based on real truth. Let no one deceive himself, it says. What's, what's another one? First John 1 8. I, I like this. I, I, I've spent so much time in First John 1. I kid you not. If, if we sit down and you're like, Hey, Jesse, can we do some counseling? Uh, 10 times out of 10, we will circle around eventually to First John. The whole chapter one is just worth its weight in gold. Uh, and he says this. John says, He says, If we say we have no sin, what do we do? We deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If in the, in the quietness of your heart, when you're just thinking about like how things went that one time and that one relationship, why things fell apart over there at that last job, why that relationship no longer is what it used to be. If, if you come to the conclusion that you are 100% innocent, um, there's probably some self-deceit happening there. Okay. Um, if you just sort of exist in this world that all the other people are, are dummies, uh, and you're the only right driver in all of Mid County, <laughs> you are probably practicing some self-deceit. No pointing fingers. Now you guys calm down. Uh, there, there is a, a position, a humble position that scripture teaches us that none of us are perfect. No, not one. That's the beginning of wisdom to know that you have sin in you that needs to be addressed. That there is, there is the proclivity in your heart too to, to lash out in anger. I don't, I don't know if you're like me, but a lot of times I will, I will do a thing, uh, not because it went through the filter, but because it just like it happened. And then after the fact, you know what I do? And maybe you don't do this. What I try to do after the fact is I try to backfill all the things that I just did, uh, to justify it so that I feel pretty good about myself and, that, that would be what scripture calls a self-deceive. I'm deceiving myself when I do that. What, what is wiser is for me to pause, to own Jesse's sin, that time that I said a thing I shouldn't have said, done a thing that I shouldn't have done, and maybe apologize to the person or, I don't know, somehow, uh, uh, scripture would say, you know, James would, would say later, confess your sins one to another so that you may be healed. Uh, we, we have to be honest with ourselves to be able to tell another man, another woman that I have a sin and I'm really, I'm really wrestling with this. Last passage I want to look at about self-deceit uh, is in Jeremiah uh, chapter 8. And this one hit me as I was looking uh, at different passages. Literally, I had a list of, I, I think, 20 before I just said, okay, like it's definitely taught all over Scripture. Uh, this one hit me hard because, because uh, I, I, one, it caught me off guard, and two, I was like, oh, yeah, but that's me too. That's, this, is, this is what I do, I think. Um, what you have in Jeremiah is uh, Jeremiah is a prophet and he's told to proclaim news to the people of God that guys, if you don't repent, judgment is coming. Um, and finally the Lord is kind of telling Jeremiah, like I'm, I'm, 
it's time. I'm, I'm fed up, and we're going to we're going to enact. There's no more. There's no more grace period. There's going to be judgment, uh, and we're going to send the people in to capture you. And here's here's the word of God as spoken through Jeremiah, uh, but it's coming. Imagine out of the voice of God. Why then has this people turned away in perpetual backsliding? It's almost like a fed up kind of a, a phrase. They hold fast to deceit. They refuse to return and. What I discovered as I was kind of pondering this verse is what God is seeing in the people of that day is that not only have they fallen for the lie, but they're choosing to believe the lie rather than the truth that's being presented to them. They would rather the lie. I think two verses later that he said, stop calling things peace when there is no peace. You're just, you're just lying to everyone. And so, I don't know. I don't know if this is you. If uh, I feel like this is a condition of humanity that we can practice self-deceit, and if we're going to be creatures of grace and what and and truth, then we need something to tell us the truth. We need to have a way to tell our heart, even to see in our heart, like no, that that one's not right. I'm not as okay as I want to be. I am now yet again falling on the grace of the cross, falling on the grace of of Jesus. I I read a book. Um, uh, probably about two years ago, and it was—it's it, about pastors. Uh, and as you imagine, I'd I'd read something like that. And uh, it was talking about the risk that pastors have is that over a season of time that they get so accustomed to teaching about the grace of Jesus that they don't teach themselves or remind themselves about the grace of Jesus. And you get to this position. There's this there's a slippery slope of like just thinking you're too put together as a pastor, and that the people need you to be perfect, right? Uh, and then and then you speak to them as if you are the example, me, that I would be the example of what holiness looks like. I need you to hear me on something. I am daily in need of the grace of Jesus to wash over my mistakes. And it's mistakes that I made thinking they were good and right in the moment. And then I fall again on the grace. And you know, time and time again, is that his grace is sufficient. Today, his grace is sufficient for you. You have not lied to yourself long enough to where he can't pull you back out of it. You have not fallen for the bad news so bad and felt the sting so deeply that he can't restore you. That is the grace of Jesus in your life. And so our, our message as, as a church, uh, and this is the church global, our message is confess your sins to Jesus and be saved. That's, that's salvation. That's justification. But what about all of you who sinned after that day? What about all of you who have sinned after you were baptized? Is there still grace? Is the cross still there? Or have you let him down? No, he's still there. He's still good. Because scripture says that if you say you're without sin, you're deceiving yourself. So the best news you have is to confess your sins to him who is holy, and he is just, and he'll wash you and cleanse you from all that unrighteousness, and he'll forgive you. It's an act of progress along the way. So here, here's what I want to do. For this first message as we open up the series, I just want to kind of get our feet under us. I want to look at Galatians chapter 6 and just try to figure out a, a case. A, a um, What can we begin doing to uh, uh, correct this mistake that is in all of us? A steady diet of truth is going to be the solution, by the way, just spoiler alert. Uh, constantly being around... Uh, uh, truth. This isn't in my notes. Um, fun, fun fact. Uh, if, if you are a bank teller, uh, and you are trained on how to spot co- counterfeit bills, lies, fake dollars, um, do you know how they train you? 
See, in my head, the way that they would train you, if I was called to train somebody on how to spot counterfeit bills, is I would get a big stack of all the counterfeit bills, uh, and I would hand them to you and be like, figure out why this one's wrong, buddy. And then when you figure that one out, I was like, okay, now level up. Here's the next fake one. You figure this one out. Uh, and then I'd just kind of keep going down the list. The problem with that is uh, there is an infinite number of lies. There's an infinite number of ways to counterfeit a dollar bill. That's not how they train bank tellers on spotting fake news. Fake dollar bills. The way that they train bank tellers on spotting the lie is that they get them really, really good at spotting the truth. I mean, so good. Handing $100 bill after $100 bill, feel it, smell it, I don't, maybe taste it. That's disgusting. Uh, like put it up on the light, rub it with a marker, rub it between your fingers, do left hand, do right hand. You get to know the real thing so good, so, so good. So that whenever the lie comes across your table, it's not even, it's just instinct. It's not a guess. And you don't even have to explain why you know it's fake. You're like, that's a fake one. You know, prove it. You prove it. Prove it's real. Uh, and and, and they, they can spot it so, so fast. The, the way that you are going to train yourself to spot your own self-deceit is not in, in, in unpacking the way that you've deceived yourself as much as it is knowing the truth really, really well. Look at Galatians chapter 6 with me. Uh, Galatians, the book written by Paul, is uh, just kind of an explanation of the gospel, as you might imagine. Um, and he's sort of like, okay, this is this is what the gospel is, and this is this I'm responding to that. But we really need to focus on this. It's a great, very practical book. Now, uh, Ephesians is like the more artistic version of Galatians. Ephesians is more like it's got more poem to it, a little bit more meter. Doesn't quite rhyme in English, but it's it's very artistic. Galatians, like this is for the, maybe just you real concrete thinkers. You know, like people who just want, I just want the nuts and bolts, Paul. That's Galatians for you. And chapter six is the end, and he's kind of landing the plane for what is to like, okay, let's, let's tie a bow on all of this. Uh, he begins chapter six was like, hey, listen, take care of each other, bear one another's burdens. And then we get to verse three. He says, for if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Thanks a lot, Paul. Yeah, yeah, real, real, uh, real self-esteem booster here right now, isn't it? If anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Okay, let's keep going. Maybe there's something good here. Verse four, but let each one test his own work and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. He gets to the end of Galatians and he's, he's kind of been saying like the, the gospel's going to tell you the truth. If you really think you're something without the gospel, you're deceiving yourself. Let each one of you test. Let's test it. Let's, let's see what that desire was, that motivation was. Why did I say that to her? Why, why is that every time someone responds to me that way, I get defensive? Test it. What's going on in your heart? Where is that coming from? You may find that you've been doing that thing, uh, not just for the last year. You might have been doing that since you were a child, and it's just now starting to catch up with you. It's, it's been maybe a, something that's kind of a, a lie that's been buried in there from, from a younger age. He says, let's let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. See, it turns out, that the gospel isn't about trying to make you holier than that jerk that you think of every time I think of someone that you're mad at. Uh, in fact, the gospel isn't really so much interested in you comparing yourself with another person. Uh, the gospel is interested in you being cleansed and made holy and then to look more like Jesus. 
And he's been he's he's warning them, like, stop boasting as if, well, you know, at least I'm not as mean as my dad was. But at least, at least I treat people nicer than my my aunt ever did. Well, I'm better to her than her last husband was. We were never meant to boast based in comparison or in contrast to the next person next to us. Why? Because Everybody you've ever met with a face has a little problem with sin and a little problem with self-deceit. Some of us are working on it. Some of us are still buying into the lies, but we're all dealing with it. To compare ourselves with one another is no good reason to boast. Instead, boast that the Lord has saved you and rescued you from your past. Who here, I wonder, is incredibly thankful you are no longer the same kind of person you were 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, holy cow, I met somebody, uh, uh, I was talking to a guy at a birthday party, so my kid was invited to a birthday party, as kids tend to do, and, and I, I meet this guy, and I'm like, man, you look familiar, he's like, uh, I don't know you, he's like, man, you look really familiar, and then he tells me his name, I know that name, I'm like, I'm, I'm talking to him, and then somebody else walks in, and someone who's related to him, and I realize the guy that I'm talking to is my former youth pastor, would have been my youth pastor when I did the grape slush bomb, and I just thought to myself, I am so glad he can't even recognize me right now. <laughs> like, like, I look nothing and act nothing like that dumb kid. Uh, in part because I've grown up, thank goodness, and in other part because Jesus has been a, a, a at steady work in my soul. And for those of you who agreed with that statement earlier, has been in steady work on your soul that my reason to boast is that the Lord has brought me from and through my you know obedience and opportunity to obey has brought me uh, and sanctified me from my previous self. Not that I'm comparing myself to my neighbor, but to my previous self. Verse 5, for each will have to bear his own load. At the end of your life, uh, you get to you get to go to heaven uh, if you're a follower of Jesus, and uh, you get to kind of review your life. And at zero point in the uh, the uh, replay reel, <laughs> I, hope, I hope there's not a ton of slow motion stuff. I hope the slow motion is like that time I really, like I picked up the, the teddy bear for the kid. Now, I'm sure the slow motion part of the reel is like, Jesse, why did you raise your voice that way? Uh, but you know, you're going through the replay reel. At zero points in that replay reel, will it go to someone else and be like, all right, I'm going to see if you're better than John over here. Zero, zero times. Uh, it will be me standing alone before the judge, and the only excuse I have, the only judgment I have, the only, the only payment I have is Jesus said he got me on this one. <laughs> what about this one? Jesus said he, said he got me on this one. For each, verse 5, will have to bear his own load. Um, this is true of, of all of you. If you're a parent in here, uh, I need you to hear me on something real quick. Uh, your kids will one day face Jesus. And they won't be judged on your obedience to Jesus. They won't be judged on mom's and dad's knowledge of the Bible or anything like that. They will stand alone as well. Um, we as parents have a holy responsibility to disciple our children because they will one day uh, need a faith of their own. They will not one day. Today, they need a faith of their own. But if they're picking backing off of you, it's okay uh, until it's not okay. They need, they need to grow. Um, those of you who have been following the Lord a while, uh, maybe maybe you have kids who have wandered off, and you're just like, I don't know what happened. Like they're just broken, and I miss them. They're they're falling away. They're living a life that I don't understand. They used to live for Jesus, and now they don't. Maybe maybe that breaks your heart quite a bit. Um, I just want you to know that uh, you're not going to answer for that. 
before the Lord. You, you are only called to be faithful and obedient to Jesus. Um, and, and maybe, maybe for the one or two people in here that that hits, uh, that, that is, uh, a piece, uh, for you. Verse six says, let the one who has taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. As, as one who teaches, I, I would appreciate hearing the, the good things. But what Paul ends up wanting to unpack is like, okay, but what is good? How do you know what good is? He just finished talking about don't deceive yourselves. When we deceive ourselves, we're deceiving ourselves that the thing that was really bad in truth, we pretended was good. We believed it was good. And so he starts to unpack that a little bit. Verse 7, do not be deceived. Don't be deceived. Okay, good. That's, that's what we're aiming for. Um, God is not mocked. He's not, he's at the end of it all. We're, we may, we may look back and be like, uh, you know, God, God let him get away with that. That thing that she did was evil and it just looks like God got away from that. At the end of it all, God is not going to be mocked. He is not slow as some count slowness, Peter would say later. Um, he wishes that all would repent. So maybe what we register as, oh, he missed that one is him giving time for, for repentance or time for somebody to turn around. But I'll tell you what, Paul's right. Uh, he, he has been running the universe for a long, long time. At the end of all of creation, he's not going to be mocked for people's behaviors, these self deceits. For whatever one sows, whatever a person sows, that will he also reap. Um, sowing and reaping. We, any farmers in here? I'm terrible at farming. I just like any plant life in my life is just, it's dead. I look at it, it turns brown. I, somebody gave me a plant. It begged to be put up for adoption. It was just like, it takes a, it's hard. Like I can't keep plants alive at all. Um, the whole sowing and reaping thing, I have to, every time I read it, because it's all over the Bible, I have to like pause and think about what he's talking about because I'm not good at it. Uh, I'm not good at the thing that he's making the metaphor of. This idea of sowing is you have seeds in your hand and these seeds have to be planted. Now the seed is, it's small. It's tiny. Uh, it's, it's very inconspicuous. Uh, someone who's an expert in botany or whatever, whatever studies seeds can tell you, like, that brown seed grows into this plant. That yellow seed grows into this plant. The big seed does this. I, I know about sunflower seeds and that's about it. Uh, they, they grow from, not from the thing that they look like. They grow into something much different than what they are. And what, what he's pointing out here is, is God's not going to be mocked. Whatever you sow, whatever seeds you put out there, you're going to also reap. The problem is, you reap the thing that it becomes. You don't reap the, the seed. If I, if I throw a sunflower seed or a watermelon seed in my backyard, it's a little tiny thing, and then it grows into a giant watermelon or a giant uh, sunflower. You, you understand the metaphor so far, yes? Yeah, okay. So verse 8, 4, The one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. The seed is small. The self-deceit is small. The sin is small. The lie that you believe is good, but it's truly bad. It looks small in that moment. And you just throw it out there. It, it, it didn't get caught in the filter. You just send it out there. All those regrets that everybody raised their hand for a moment ago, those are seeds getting thrown out there. And why do you regret it right now? Because it grew up into something, didn't it? It grew up into a story. It grew up into a little thing that embarrassed you. It grew up into some heartache. 
It grew up into some tears. It grew up into something. It grew up into corruption, Paul says. It always grows up into something bigger. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. We, we, have, we have things uh, that we can sow into this world. And you get to choose. Are you sowing it to your own desires, to your own deceit, to your own version of good? Or do you want to submit your filter for what is good, your definition for what is good to what the Lord says is good, and sow it to that? In the end, they seem small when you're sowing it. They, both sides seem really small, seem really insignificant. Uh, but in the end, they grow up into something bigger. One into corruption, the other into life. Here's, here's, the, here's the problem. Um, with uh, Those of you who have been following the Lord for a minute, you know this already, but like the ways of the Lord, they're not always instinctual, are they? It, it, like Sometimes it's like, okay, I, I'm t- being nice to people. My grandma taught me that. Okay, I can be nice to people. And then Jesus whispers, yeah, but love. <laughs> love your enemy. I don't want to. He's kind of a jerk, Lord. Yeah, but I said love. You know, he's like whispering. It's like, that seems so small, Lord. What, what does it matter? He's like, oh, just sow it. Just trust me, man. <laughs> just, just sow it to the Spirit. And what does it do? It grows into life when you learn to forgive the people that don't deserve your forgiveness. It, it, you learn to, you, it grows into life when you, when you confess your own sin instead of justifying it later. Oh, you don't know, you don't know what I went through. My childhood, you, you know why I am the way that I am. If you had the childhood I had, you'd be the way that I am too. Stop justifying it and just say, I'm sorry or something. Stop sowing to the flesh because you're, every time it grows up later, a month later, maybe sometimes 10 minutes later, maybe it's 10 years later, but it grows up into bigger corruption and pain. Sow to the spirit and you get life. Uh, I've been following the Lord long enough to know that even, even, you know, in the last several years, I've sown in both directions. In both directions, I've been surprised with how big it got, surprised with how much grief this side caused me, and surprised with how much life this side gave me and my relationships and the people that I know, relationships with, with you all even. But it's hard to do that, isn't it? It's hard to keep choosing to do the good thing whenever everything around you is going bad. It's hard to keep sowing to life whenever he hasn't asked for forgiveness and she doesn't deserve it anyway. And all the things, it gets so hard. It gets so tiresome. I wonder if Paul knew about that. Verse 9, and let us not grow weary of doing good. Oh, man. (laughs) He knew it was going to be hard because he's an old guy and he's gone through it a couple of times. It gets tiresome. Um, Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap. Don't stop sowing to the Spirit because you haven't reaped something good in a while. Because in due season, when the Lord is ready, you're going to reap it. You're going to get it. Now, let me be very clear. This is not a message about karma. This is a message about the consequences of falling for real truth versus fake truth. Okay? Um, this is not doing good and then having good done to you. It's about knowing what real good is. Because Hitler had his version of good. I don't want to do any of that. Neither do you. That guy that you hate, that girl that you're mad at, they have their own version of good too. You don't want any of that. You want real good. And so let's sow to the real good. Verse 10, so then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. You have a lot of opportunities to do good, real good. Not the fake good, the real good. 
uh, true good, the good that the Lord has defined. And as you have opportunity, take it. Especially, Paul would add, those who are of the household of faith. This is one of the benefits that people really misunderstand about the church. Like, oh, you just want me to go to church because of tithes or uh, attendance. You know, God doesn't care about attendance. I can worship him in this boat. Sure, you can worship God in the boat or the deer stand. It's opening season. Uh, you can worship God wherever you want. He's there, right? But you're not going to have somebody with the opportunity to do good in your life in that boat. They're all looking at what you're trying to catch. You know, like, like the, you're by yourself on the boat. But when you're in the community of faith, a community of church, you're plugged into even, even outside of the, the rows of a church, but in a community group or just a tight-knit group of people, you have opportunity to serve one another, sowing good into each other's lives and, and together reaping a bigger harvest. This turns into a great farmer's metaphor. But we're going we're gonna to close our opening of the series with this. Everyone, everyone wants to define good their way. Only God defines true good little nerdy moment, if you want to hike up your glasses real quick. Uh, yes, uh, the etymology of the word good depends on a definition of God. There is no, no, no word, there's no meaning of good without a definition of God. Jesus even made that claim whenever someone said, hey, you're a good teacher. It's like, why do you call me good? Don't you know only God is good? Um, God defines what is good, but your heart will whisper to you, Hey, you should you should speak up. You deserve you deserve to let off a little steam right now. Those fake goods are sowing to the flesh, and we always reap corruption from it. And so, what we're going to do for this series, the next several weeks uh, before Christmas, we're not going to be on adding this at Christmas time. But for the next several weeks, as we kind of cross over Thanksgiving and into early December, we're just going to be looking at real ways that we can untangle this knot. Our heart is trying to build itself, and we want to untangle all the self deceit, and we want our hearts to be built around good true good, God's good, not what we call good. But for now, we'll leave it at this, that the Lord wants you to not grow weary, continue to do good, and bless those when you have opportunity. And you have opportunity every single day. And then we'll start to unpack self-deceit. Pray with me. Uh, Lucas, do we have a, a cue today? Okay, and then pray with me and watch the cue. Father, um, Father, we come to you um, as, as fragile people. Uh, fragile people that are constantly trying to protect our hearts from hurt and pain. Lord, teach us, uh, teach us, Lord, to to trust you, uh, to to go your way about things, to love you, and to be good for others. Lord, teach us true good. Um, help us to continue to uh, uh, find the real version of good in your Word as we open it up, and just be so exposed to it that when our heart lies to us, uh, Lord, we. Uh, we know when to when to not listen. We know when to turn to truth. Lord, I pray for the men and women in this room that um, just as, as we deal with regrets, I pray that one by one uh, they would lay them down at the foot of the cross, would be washed clean of that, be forgiven, and just uh, find peace rather than uh, self-doubt and uh, pain. Lord, we love you. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.